Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying Is, I'm Peter Whittle. Now I'm delighted that my guest this week has been on the channel before uh, when he wrote an enormously successful book on Winston Churchill. Andrew Roberts has just written a new biography of George III, but of course he's the author of something like 18 books, including biographies of Lord Salisbury, Lord Halifax and Napoleon. The new book is called George III, The Life and Reign of Britain's Most Misunderstood Monarch. Um, thank you very much for coming, Andrew. Thanks very much, Peter. It's great to be on the show again. Yes. Um, most Misunderstood Monarch. Now, the way that most people have seen this, I would say, in this country at least, is in the sense of was he mad or what did he have some terrible illness or whatever but this is wider than that isn't it much wider yes i think the three things that people know about george the third was that he was uh, he had porphyria this uh, form of madness that he uh, his obstinacy lost us the american colonies and obviously from the declaration of independence and from um hamilton the musical uh, he's thought of also as a tyrant and all three of those things are completely wrong. Um, it wasn't porphyria that he had, it was uh, manic depression and bipolar disorder, which um, most doctors now accept. So that theory, uh, which has been around for 50 years and which Alan Bennett and Nicholas Heitner and others, you know, made TV shows and, and plays about, is completely wrong. Uh, he most certainly was not a um, uh, obstinate idiot who lost the American colonies. In fact, he was a constitutional monarch, and it was the politicians and later the generals and admirals that, that lost that war. And uh, he certainly was not a tyrant either. America, in fact, was one of the most free countries in the world in the 1760s. And uh, we know what 18th century tyranny was like from the Russians and Austrians and Prussians and so on. And, uh, and the way he treated America was completely different from that. So basically, we've got him wrong, um, but America has him wrong. You mentioned Hamilton and music there. Um, this idea of tyranny and of George being a, a, a tyrant, uh, that is very much the American view, isn't it? It's holy writ in America, and understandably so. Every nation needs to have its creation myths, but it is a myth. Uh, the king was guilty of uh, imposing taxation. It was only ever very small amounts of taxation, by the way, and it was all the money that was raised was going to be spent in America on Americans. But nonetheless, he did have the right to, uh, to tax the constitutional right in the same way that his nine predecessors since Elizabeth I did. And he also, of course, had veto powers over American legislation. So, uh, so that justifies, in my view, the revolution. You know, they had the right, they had the ability, um, they had the numbers, they had the economy to set up their own state in the 1770s. But that doesn't justify the propaganda, sheer wartime propaganda, of making him out to be a tyrant. He wasn't. In the 28 charges that Thomas Jefferson um, accused uses him of in the Declaration of Independence, only two of them are true. Uh, apparently around this time we've had a lot of statues being torn down, haven't we? But it, his was torn down in New York, wasn't it? Yes, it was during the, uh, during the Revolution. In fact, only a few days after the Declaration of Independence. So the Declaration came out on the 4th of July 1776 and his statue uh, was pulled down in Manhattan on the 9th of July. Um, there were uh, 
um, large numbers of, of statues that were being attacked. You know, his, his coat of arms was pulled down. They changed the names of places that had his uh, name uh, in it. So it was a sort of general free-for-all, really, as in, the, in the way that you get in revolutions. Would you go as far as to say that he was a great monarch? I mean, you're, you're obviously, you know, looking at him in a, I, a different light now, but... I don't think he was a great monarch, no. I think he was a great man. Um, but, uh, but because he was a constitutional monarch, and he only on one occasion ever actually sacked a, a government that, um, that had a majority in the House of Commons and appointed another, and he was um, justified in doing that in the subsequent general election in which the uh, incoming government won a landslide victory. Um, but he was a, a, a fine man. He was a really upstanding, uh, splendid man in so many ways. He was the man who created the Royal Academy, who created the nucleus for the British Library with his li library of 80,000 books. He bought Buckingham Palace and uh, had a um, proper loving relationship with his wife, the only one of the Hanoverian monarchs actually to be faithful to his uh, wife. He was a good-natured man, as we see from the diaries of Fanny Burney, and um, he was somebody who showed tremendous sort of dignity uh, and a sense of duty in the sense, actually, I believe, that he's the founder of the modern monarchy, much more than Queen Victoria. Um, we'll probably come on to that later. But uh, so in that sense, I think when we look at our present queen, we see a, um, a monarch who has inherited many of George III's best um, attributes. Yes, I mean, as you say, we're going to talk about it a bit later, but without wishing to be too frivolous, uh, you have the situation of George being a very domestic man, didn't travel very much, did he? No, he never went, extraordinarily, he never went north of Worcester or west of Plymouth. He, he was king of, uh, of you know, Scotland and Ireland and never went there. He certainly didn't go to America, of course, and he was elector of Hanover and never went there either. He, he stayed in the home counties. But, you know, we have an extremely sort of worthy monarch now. Um, and. Obviously, George III had a very difficult relationship with uh, his son, George IV. Um, there is, who was more extravagant, should we say? Oh, my God. He, he was absolutely, totally... He had compulsive buying disorder. He was the sort of Imelda Marcos of the 18th century. He couldn't yeah. see something without buying it. There was one point where he was uh, spending as much money, and it's essentially taxpayers' money, uh, because he got bailed out all the time by Parliament, uh, the same amount as we were spending on the Royal Navy. Yes. But do you think that... I mean. Prince Charles has a kind of reputation for being rather extravagant, doesn't he? And whereas the Queen's very not, thrifty, but it's not in, in the same league, is nothing it? Nothing really? like the same league. <laughs> no, but George III was frugal as well, and he ate and drank very um, abstemiously, you know, like the Queen does. Uh, so, um, so I suppose there's the outlines of a um, um, of an analogy there, but really not at all because um, because Prince Charles doesn't rack up massive debts that require the the whole of the uh, of the sort of British economy to be rocking in dealing with. Um, if you look back at this extraordinary period, not just the American War of Independence, but of course we had the, as you say in the book, the Agricultural Revolution, the Industrial Revolution, the Napoleonic Wars, because he was up until that point the longest reigning, wasn't he, Martin? He Well, he still is the longest reigning king. Longest reigning king. Um, when you said that he's a constitutional monarch, how did that work then, Andrew? Because it's not really as we, when we look at the monarch today, it seems very, very clear cut. Um, but you then 
mentioned there that he, he didn't sack a government. I mean, what, what was the role of the constitutional monarch in his time? It was much uh, more powerful, obviously, than the one today. Um, but he didn't veto any bills, for example, which he had the constitutional right to do. He only on one occasion appointed a prime minister who didn't have the support of the House of Commons. Uh, and that was because the radical Whigs were trying to nationalise the East India Company and would have therefore accreted to themselves such huge powers that he thought that that was going to alter the, the powers in the constitution. He was able to and did and was one of the last prime ministers to, uh, sorry, the last monarch to um, appoint cabinet ministers separately from the prime minister and, uh, and deal with them on a one-to-one -one basis. Uh, and after him, everybody dealt with, um, with governments through the prime minister. So that gave him a, a good deal of power. But um, it's, uh, it's, it's less power than the American president has today, for example. Right. So if that were the case with George, when would you roughly say that the monarchy as it stands today in political terms, would that have been Victoria that that yes. really formed? Yes, that's, his, that's George III's granddaughter, mm. Queen Victoria, who very much um, was able, as you see in the bedchamber crisis of, uh, of 18, the, 1843, uh, was able to sack a government. Um, was it 1839? Uh, she did it twice, in fact, um, but, um, but she wasn't able to do that by the end of her time. You know, elections by that stage were very obviously did um, show the will of the people and, uh, and monarchs weren't able to, uh, to just ignore that. Uh, I think one of the attitudes you have here uh, towards the Hanoverian monarchs, really, one of the aspects of it is they're seen as being kind of alien or they didn't speak you know, English as a first language. Uh, George III was intensely patriotic, wasn't he? I mean, he, he, there's this phrase, born and educated in this country, I glory in the name of Britain. Exactly. He was the first British Hanoverian monarch. Um, the, uh, the first one didn't even speak English, uh, but George spoke English um, without a German accent. He spoke German as well, but he spoke English as his first language. And as you say, he was a patriot. He thought of himself primarily as, uh, as British. And indeed, he was quite anti-Hanoverian in the early part of his, of his life. When he was Prince of Wales, uh, he called it that horrid electorate. It was only much later when he was king uh, and it was threatened by Napoleon that he became uh, a lot closer to it, although not physically, as I mentioned, you know, yeah. he never went there. Um, isn't it right that you had access to quite a bit of new material with this book from the War Archives? Yes, the Queen in 2015 put 100,000 pages of George III um, documents, um, letters mainly, but uh, lots of other kind of documents, onto something called the Georgian papers program, a wonderful program at King's College London. And so we have this vast new sort of avalanche of, um, of material, which uh, was fascinating to go through because there's only been one other biography of George III in the last half century. Really? And what emerged from this material for you? Well, one of the really interesting things that emerged from it was that as Prince of Wales, when he was writing an essay as a, uh, as a young man in the 1750s, um, he actually very much opposed slavery. Um, 
And, uh, and he says in this essay that all the arguments for slavery are ludicrous and, uh, and ridiculous and that it has to be held up to execration. And that's why, I think, he never bought or sold a slave in his life. He didn't invest in the companies that, um, that owned slaves. He, of course, signed the legislation that abolished the slave trade. Uh, but he was not an abolitionist himself. And you have to, this is a difficult um, issue, really, because, of course, we all know how uh, evil, what a monstrous um, thing slavery was. And partly this was because he was a constitutional monarch and there was no majority for the abolition of slavery during his lifetime in the House of Commons or the House of Lords. And also... Um, he recognised that about a third of the revenues that came from the West Indies, which was a huge amount of, uh, of British um, government income, really did come from, uh, from stuff like sugar, which they couldn't work out a way of, um, of farming without slavery. Mm. I see. So it was very much the contemporary pragmatic mindset, if you like. It was realpolitik. Mm. Um, but also, the positive side of it is that he didn't want to, um, even if he had wanted to abolish slavery, um, he probably wouldn't have, because as I say, he was somebody who who um, did not want to go against the, the will of the House of Commons and the House of Lords. It wasn't until uh, 1829 that they, that they got rid of um, slavery, and he'd been dead by nine years by then. Can you just tell us just some of the sort of treatments he would have been subjected to when oh, he was... So terrible. Poor man. I mean, it's, mm. a, it's, it's really uh, the pathos of it uh, is, uh, is overwhelming sometimes. He was, uh, he was um, put in a, what was called straight waistcoat, what we call a straight jacket, uh, for, um, for hours and hours on end. Uh, he was um, you know, physically held down in a in a chair that he nicknamed his throne. He was gagged um, when he talked too much. On some occasions when he had these attacks, he would talk for 24 hours without stopping. Um, he was uh, um, given the most incredibly painful um, bleeding um, so-called uh, cures, which were not cures at all. They just made it work the whole thing process worse, uh, where they would put um, it's something called cupping, where they would put uh, a glass on his thigh and his arms to sort of bring up um, and heat, they, it would then be heated and it would, it would, uh, it would sort of lacerate his, um, his skin. Uh, he was incredibly brave. He was a brave man anyway. Mm. He survived six assassination attempts and, and he was immensely brave in the Gordon riots and uh, in the invasion threats and so on. But never more brave, I think, than when he was the helpless spectator at his own mental collapse. And he did actually, in the end, go what we might call insane. Didn't oh yes, he? no, he was absolutely. This uh, it was a it was a bipolar um, disorder that um, for the last ten years of his life he had five attacks of it. Most historians say there were only four, but I've discovered a prodrome attack in 1765, and I'm certain was this and um and the last whole 10 years of his life uh he was he was mad and he was also poor man senile and blind and deaf um and when his blindness came on um you you wanted uh, examples of horrible things that happened well when his blindness came on um with uh, his um um first set of um of oncoming blindness they put leeches on his eyes Ooh. 
terrible. Unspeakable, isn't unspeakable, it? Unspeakable, unspeakable. He was also known as Farmer George, wasn't he? And, and there are some examples in the book uh, of really very touching uh, encounters with like ordinary, the public, long before we had things like the walkabout and everything. I mean, he, he would actually, I suppose the king could walk about then without necessarily being recognised. Well, I mean, other than the currency, there was, you know, people didn't know what he looked like much. Um, there were some prints, of course, but uh, uh, you wouldn't spot him um, uh, sort of coming down the road and, see, and think that's the king, especially <laughs> as he very often went around without any entourage at all, and he dressed as a normal gentleman farmer. Um, so, uh, or at least a gentleman, you know, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't, um, uh, like Louis the Sixteenth, who who sort of completely uh, overdressed all the time, and so he would just wander around uh, the countryside sometimes and bumping into uh, into ordinary people. He he talk about the you know price of hay, and um, and there are lots of occasions where uh, where the person then later is surprised to to discover that uh, she's been talking to the king. <laughs> uh, these stories abound. Usually at the end, he gives her a uh, a guinea. <laughs> um, you he seemed therefore to be. Popular for a lot, as you said, for long stretches, but he also there were a few attacks, as you say. I think on his way, particularly it was uh, onto the state opening of parliament. There yes, was he wasn't always popular at all. You know, his, uh, especially in the early part of his reign, he appointed a Scot, um, the Earl of Bute, to be prime minister at a time that. The Scots were tremendously unpopular still in London because uh, the Jacobite rebellion had only ended um, in 1745, and um, and that made him uh, profoundly unpopular. His mother was very unpopular as well, completely unfairly. That people thought that Princess Augusta had been sleeping with the Earl of Bute, the uh, this Prime Minister, and um, which uh, which she wasn't. But nonetheless. Uh, that uh, brought unpopularity. So uh, during the Wilkesite riots, um, uh, supporters of the journalist John Wilkes threw stones at his, um, at his carriage as he went, as you said, to the state opening of Parliament. And, um, you know, on occasion it got, it got pretty uh, nasty. They were full-scale riots. I mean, do you, this goes perhaps for, for all your subjects, really. I mean, do you, have you ended up liking, say, like George or, or Halifax or Salisbury, ended up liking or admiring them more than when you started out? Some I have, um, others, others not. Um, uh, Lord Mountbatten I wrote about in my book, uh, Eminent Churchillians, who I was expecting to, uh, to like much more. And actually, I found him just too much of a showman uh, and too obsessed with his own reputation and too willing to uh, manipulate um, the evidence with regard to his own um, reputation. So I'm afraid he didn't really grow on me. There have been a few others also. But, um, but with Winston Churchill and, uh, and Napoleon, I think it's probably the sense of humour. They, they were just, you know, very funny people. They were constantly coming out with, with jokes that are still funny, uh, in Napoleon's case, 200 years later. As it shows a sort of humanity, I suppose, doesn't it? That and, and, uh, and a slight ability to take the mickey out of oneself, um, which one doesn't automatically assume is uh, there in a, um, a conqueror or an emperor. 
One thing that's quite interesting, really, is that during George's reign, uh, it was a kind of revolutionary time. There was the French Revolution, Napoleonic uh, Wars, and, and then that, obviously, after he died, it became more, more so in Europe. Um, did he have a sense of the institution being fragile? The institution of monarchy, yes. very much, especially after the execution of Louis XVI. Mm. Um, he had a sort of love-hate relationship with Louis XVI because, of course, it was Louis XVI's um, declaration of war uh, against Britain in, um, in 1778 that had effectively turned the American Revolution into a world war and meant that it was going to be very, very difficult for us to win. So, um, so France being the rival power, um, he didn't mind seeing a revolution there, but one that started to chop off royals' heads, of course, suddenly becomes an awful lot more uh, serious ideologically. And, um, and that's why he, after a, a lifetime of being opposed by Edmund Burke, uh, for example, once Burke wrote his reflections on the revolution in France, um, George embraced him. So uh, that is um, that is a moment, a, a very worrying moment, not just for George, of course, but also for the uh, Austrian, Prussian, Russian mm. monarchies. Mm. Do you think it, the monarchy now uh, is more fragile than it would have been that? I mean, you know, when, when we see that he went through periods of unpopularity, for example, uh, you know, there's very, very... Uh, vivid demonstrations, people actually throwing things to his, his carriage, uh, that would never or doesn't really happen now. No. But do, do you think the institution, if, if the foundations were basically laid during his reign, do you think it's in rude health or? I think it or? is with, with Her Majesty the Queen, absolutely. I mean, mm. apart from, of course, she's, she's in her mid-90s. Um, but I think that uh, whenever you look at the polls, the, um, the number of people who want a republic in Britain, I mean, it's, it's pretty much the same as people who want to have everyone speak Esperanto. Mm. It's, a re it's a really sort mm. of um, um, fringe um, interest, really, republicanism in this country. Yes. Uh, it's interesting you, you mentioned that when you look at the polls, uh, the, the republican uh, percentage hasn't pretty much changed for about 40 or 50 years. This is despite the ups and downs. Mm. But it does seem sometimes that the rest of the establishment, perhaps in a way that wouldn't have been the case in George's day, are pretty much pitted against it in, 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 in a way. Okay. Well, I think that um, the, uh, some of the newspapers can go very far in, uh, in denigrating the monarchy, but they certainly uh, did in George III's time as well. And uh, when one thinks of those cartoons of, uh, of Gilray and uh, Rowlandson and, uh, and so on, Crookshank, um, you know, they were incredibly vicious, much more vicious, actually, I think, than, uh, than you get away with uh, today. So um, I think for the monarchy to be in danger, uh, you would have to have one of the great political parties embrace republicanism and actually you know, want to uh, argue in the House of Commons and the House of Lords that this system be changed for a different one. And, um, and not even the, actually I don't know what the stance of the Greens is on the monarchy, they, oh, might well, they, they, they probably are republican aren't mm -hmm. they? Uh, but other than that I don't think it's been, uh, it's been embraced by uh, any sort of mainstream um, 
mainstream uh, party. You don't think that there would be a possibility that, you see, there's absolutely nothing to be gained, is there, by attacking the Queen, uh, because she's universally respected. But once she's no longer there, one can see sort of situation arising where people start asking for referendums, things like that. I think, that. and also, of course, there are going to be some Commonwealth countries, mm. probably, that, uh, that leave the Commonwealth after, um, or at least they don't leave the Commonwealth, they will no longer have the British head of state as their head of state. Mm. Um, and, uh, and that's a process that's already starting. But, um, frankly, uh, I think the British people are so much and more intelligent than um, than they're given credit for by some people because they can tell the difference between having a um, a person who's unpopular as king or queen and actually getting rid of an entire system that's been around for a thousand years provides a bulwark against dictatorship and uh, over mighty politicians and which um, has has worked you know extremely well and and it's a very cheap form of having a um, uh, power above politics. So, so I think that even if you had, say, um, Prince uh, William became unpopular, um, it doesn't mean that they would, uh, the British people would get rid of the entire monarchy. Um, I think they just wait until Prince George. I think what's particularly interesting in the, in the context of our time, the past year, um, what we talked about when you were last on on the channel, which was. Uh, the statue toppling that went on. Um, the monarchy, in a way, is, is the absolute living embodiment of what is disliked by these people. It is the symbol of our history. It's a symbol of our imperial history. And I just wonder whether... Oh, I'm much more than that also. At the apex of a, social, of a class system, the, uh, the fount of honour, the um, centre of philanthropy, lots of things that... Uh, um, people who want to overturn society um, hate. What I've found is that people who were natural Republicans, um, some of them have been on this on this show, uh, are sort of finding themselves sort of lining up uh, with the monarchy because now so much is at stake. It seems. I mean, I wanted to ask you a little about about this, Andrew. I mean, when you started out as uh, an historian, I'm sure you wouldn't have seen yourself as being on the absolute front line of an attack generally on on our past. I mean, in some ways, you are there on the front line as an historian, aren't you? Well, I don't know that I am, but Churchill is, of course. He's on the front line of the culture wars, and I am um, the most recent biographer of Churchill. So in a sense, I'm sort of, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pushed there. Um, but, and I'm perfectly happy to be there, by the way. I think the culture wars are genuine. Um, it's a genuine struggle, not brought on by, uh, by conservative-minded people at all, but by uh, ultra-progressive people who want to use them as a way of destabilizing our society, our sense of identity, our sense of where we came from, and so on. So I think that um, if you are, um, and by the way, I think they'll ultimately lose the culture wars as well, because the more that um, people recognize that this is a struggle, the more ordinary, normal, sensible people come to uh, the side of the argument that says, no, we shouldn't be um, pulling down statues. We should perhaps be putting statues in their proper context. We should be putting up more statues. Um, but we, uh, if any local community is asked whether or not Buller in Exeter or, um, 
or um, Robert Baden-Powell or um, Francis Drake are going to be pulled down in their market squares, I think you're going to get a huge majority against it. And so I'm up for, I'm up for these, these local referenda. I think the more the merrier. Yes, uh, great when they happen. Um, but I think what, from what you know, the comments we get from viewers uh, is, there is a, they're, they're perplexed that even though there's such strength of feeling popularly, um, somehow the steamroller seems to carry on. Well, exactly. Yeah, the, it's the it's left up to the trustees of Guy's Hospital to to box up um, uh, Thomas Guy, and not up to the people around. You know who uh, ought to have a a vote on it. I think when when local people are given a vote on these things, they'll give a resounding raspberry to the people who, for entirely politically correct and woke reasons, want to try to see um, the past entirely in terms of the uh, present, which is as moronic as trying to see the present in terms of the future. Um, you know, and uh, and you just can't do it. You can't. I mean. We don't know what Oliver Cromwell would think about socialised medicine. It's mm, just impossible mm, mm. to uh, time travel like that. Mm. But that's essentially what these uh, uh, work people are trying to make us do. I mean, do you do you subscribe to the kind of the view of there having been a long march to our institutions? Because because the, the reason I ask is that you know you have described, for example, when you have spoken at various, I think there was a panel on Churchill that you spoke at, and it seems to me the case that the people that you are with who are, you know, attacking Churchill, they're doing it because he's an emblem particularly of our spirit, you know, that's how he's seen, for better or worse. Um, and they are in these institutions, they are in incredibly influential universities. Well, on this occasion, actually, the institution was Churchill College, Cambridge, right. um, where four academics, I wasn't uh, on that panel, four academics uh, were sort of basically egging each other on. They all agreed with one another that Winston Churchill was, as one of them put it, as bad as Hitler. Uh, this was uh, last uh, February. And, um, and yes, they, there has been a long march through the institutions, really since the 1960s, and not just the academic institutions, but you see it uh, really across society. Um, I was hoping that a, a Tory government um, would, certainly one that's been in power for 10 years, would have uh, turned this back in some way. I haven't seen that yet. I know that some people, are involved in that and tried hard. I think Oliver Dowden did a good job as uh, Secretary of State for Culture. Um, I've got high hopes for anybody else who you know takes up those cudgels. But it does seem that um, although the uh, British people are still willing to vote Tory, um, there are fewer and fewer actual uh, conservative-minded people at key places in um, in British culture and society and it's a and 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 it doesn't seem to be affected by who's in power but can they for example can a government not make sure that when appointments are made to quangos for example or these sort of things that they are made by people who are more sympathetic to their view, the government's well, that, view. That, that is that is happening but it's it's happening late and late. it's not happening um you know aggressively um, and uh, and also, you know, there is an element that if that, I mean, Tony Blair did this. He 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 understood the uh, the power of the quangocracy, 
and uh, and I just think that that um, conservative-minded people are a bit you know late to the game, frankly. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't mean that um, I've, I've I've still got high hopes that um, that you know this is not a completely lost battle. So yes, I mean you said earlier you we you know we as it as it were in inverse would win this. I mean uh, I I think that people need to be encouraged so much because uh, our, you know when when you walk away from the kind of discussions we have and ordinary people you know living their lives you know and see every day a little bit more being chipped away mm. and this is utterly demoralizing which I think mm. is surely is one of the purposes of it. Absolutely it? yes no I agree I think that uh, the the literal sense of demoralization of a nation is something that the certainly the extreme left would um, would love to achieve in this country um, but no, the reason that I said that I think that we're winning is only if A, people know that there's a battle going on, which I think they do now, and B, their voice is heard, um, especially at the, uh, at the ballot box, which is why, as I mentioned, I think that before any statue is taken down anywhere, um, there should be a, a vote of local people about it. You're involved uh, with a new campaign called History Reclaimed, which I think is started by Robert Toombs. Yes. Right? Yeah. Well, Robert, you know, he's he's very much the, the driving force, as is uh, David Abalafia, the professor at, uh, at Cambridge. But also, I think they have uh, 40 or 50 people, including me, on their um, sort of advisory board. Uh, so it's it's not just um, just beleaguered, uh, Robert. There are um, there are lots of us. And this uh, basically is is it a website or is it something people can be, become involved? It's a website, absolutely. It, um, it's got ambitions to be much more than that. Mm. It's uh, got a lot of hits, actually, quite um, an astoundingly large number of people, um, you know, visit it and uh, donate to us and so on. And what it's going to do is really be a, um, uh, a quick response unit. Uh, uh, rapid response unit they're called aren't they when something you know ridiculous and and woke and untrue is said about history about some historical figure or some historical fact it's going to come out with the truth uh, which is going to be properly researched and evidence-based and factual uh, and um, we've already tried this actually and uh, very successfully I think with this Churchill um, conference that you yes. mentioned earlier yes. because policy exchange the think tank put out a, um, a, a i think it's like a 20 page um refutation of the arguments made that i wrote uh, along with zuditu gabrionis and together this has been put onto the um the History Reclaimed website, so anyone can read it. And, uh, and it's had a tremendous um, response, actually. Uh, yes, also I'm reminded of the Free Speech Union. Uh, yeah. It's a similar sort of thing where mm. basically people can go and sort of actually have um, you know, advice as what they can That's do. right. Well, yeah. with what Toby Young is doing in the Free Speech Union uh, is a kind of um, more general... Um, uh, kind of thing that that history reclaimed is doing but it actually gives you proper legal advice if you think that you've been um, sacked for some some woke politically correct reason if you're a brexiteer for example and you've been uh, chucked out of your um, job 
because of that, then you go to um, you go to Toby and the Free Speech Union, which I'm also very proud to be um, mm. involved in, and they will lawyer up for you. Mm. So this is a fight back, really, isn't it? I mean, history reclaimed. A very late one. Uh, a very we're tiptoeing around what what can be and, and can't be done. But yes, of course, it's a fight back because you're actually fighting for something that's really worthwhile. I mean, British history is not something to be ashamed of. It's something to be proud of, and uh, and it's it's tragic that that isn't um, taken for granted really by uh, by lots of people. Well, I think history surely, you know. Basically, you can't, you shouldn't wipe out people's background, their memory, their story. And their ancestors, you know, and, their, and their, their, you know, if, if you have a grandfather who um, worked in the, oh, I don't know, um, uh, the Celanese police uh, force, then you should be proud of that because um, these people, 99 times out of 100, were doing excellent and good work and uh, for them to be sort of attacked and slagged off just because they were colonialists or imperialists or so on, I think is a terrible way to treat people's ancestors. Well, what we should do, uh, we'll, we'll put the, uh, the link to History Reclaimed uh, you, you'll see it under this video um, and uh, do go and look at it, it's fantastic stuff um, and Andrew thank you very much for that and the book again George III uh, by Andrew Roberts The Life and Reign of Britain's Most Misunderstood Monarch um, it is majestic um, thank you very, very much. Andrew. You are very kind, Peter. I've much enjoyed it. Thank you. Um, that's it for So What You're Saying Is. Uh, we shall be back next time. Thank you very much.